Hebrews 11, 13 to, to 16. So Hebrews 11 is sometimes considered the faith hall of fame. It gives us the definition of faith in, in verse 1, and then it goes through a list of Old Testament heroes who lived by faith. We have Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And, and this is not a complete list, and, and Hebrews makes that clear as the writer states that the time would fail for him to write all the stories and name all the names. But there is an interlude From the listing of the names that takes place at verse 13. And that interlude is where we're going to rest today. As we continue to ask the question, who are we? Let's turn to Hebrews 11, 13 and 16 and see how this passage answers that question. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. These all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's, uh, let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Praise in your name. Amen. Living in exile. Do we understand what it means to live in exile? As an exile, you are unable to live in the place that you consider home, the place that is comfortable. And instead, you are forced to live in a place that is foreign, a place that is different, a place that you do not belong, a place that is uncomfortable, a place that is either bent on seeing you move on to somewhere else, some other country, So you don't affect their way of life, their culture, or else it is intent on assimilating you into its own culture, that that yours might be replaced, that your culture might be removed so that you would fit in better with this new culture, the culture of the place that you have been exiled to. Your culture, what you believe, and how you live is heavily influenced by your status as an exile? Will you act out your beliefs in a hostile land? Or will you assimilate to the cultures and practices of the land that you find yourself in? To those, or those to whom this letter was written understood exactly what it meant to live in exile. The Hebrews spent many years in exile in Babylon. They could not return to Israel and Judah. They had to live among a people who did not hold their beliefs, but in fact were antagonistic towards them. Does this sound familiar? Do we see this at work here in our own lives, in our modern world? The culture that we live in is antagonistic towards Christianity. But not only Christianity, it's, it's antagonistic towards morality. 
The concept of truth itself is under attack. Oprah Winfrey received the Cecil B. DeMille Award at the Golden Globes last month. And she gave a rousing speech that resulted in a, in a standing ovation. Now, there was an element of her speech that, that, man, it just really bothered me. Just really affected me. As, as it reflected so clearly the issues that we have today, both politically and socially. Oprah makes a comment about the press being under attack. So that's, you know, that's, that's a thing. And then she said this. We also know it's the insatiable dedication to uncovering the absolute truth that keeps us from turning a blind eye to corruption and to injustice. Absolute truth. Okay, that sounds good. We're going in a good direction. Let's, let's keep that going. And then she continues... That keeps us from turning a blind eye to corruption and to injustice, to tyrants and victims and secrets and lies. Okay? I want to say that I value the press more than ever before as we try to navigate these these complicated times. Which brings me to this. What I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool that we have. Speaking your truth. Your truth. What does she mean by that? Your truth. I was, on fa- I was in a Facebook conversation with a young man a couple weeks ago. And I came across that phrase again. We were discussing allegations that have been brought against a celebrity by a young woman. And, and wondering how we can know who to trust. How he can know who is telling the truth. And this is what the young man's response was. He wrote, I understand. You know, I I don't necessarily think she lied. She told her truth about what she experienced. Assuming she's not lying to spark some sort of controversy. I just think his truth might be different than hers. It's not a lie. It's about perception. All truth is relative. To which I responded, is truth relative, though? I would argue that it's not. Perception may be relative, but perception and truth are two very different things. To which this young man responded, there is no such thing as a universal truth, because everyone's reality is different. What holds true for you in your life could be the complete opposite of what my truth is. Ergo, all truth is relative. He is not alone in this opinion. Oprah was applauded for that exact line of thought in, in a world full of, of, of Hollywood elites. We see this echoed all over the place in society. That truth is relative. What's true for you doesn't have to be true for me. Because that's not how I see things. That's not what my life experience tells me. So absolute truths have to be gone. Our culture has confused experiences with reality and perception with truth. So that what I perceive is true for me and what you perceive is true for you. You guys' opinion is not the same as truth. 
This idea is a cesspit cesspit wormhole that our, our culture has jumped into with both feet. And it undermines the factual existence of absolute truth. It is absolutely true that abortion is killing a baby. It's murder. But we don't like that. Because it makes us feel guilty, and and so we've disguised it and and layered it and moved it into a discussion on rights and liberties. We've made it about our truth and, and their truth. And we've eliminated absolute truth. It's absolutely true that all people matter to God equally. There is no color that God likes better. He created us all equal. He loves us all equally. And yet there are still pockets of our society that are race-centric. The last five years have been marred by explosive and violent demonstrations over race. Just because your perception is that white skin carries more value than black skin or that black skin carries more value than white skin, your perception does not make your conclusion, truth. Those statements just aren't true. What is true is that all skin is of the same value. This is true. Doesn't mean society treats it that way, but it's true regardless. Our culture no longer values truth. It values opinion in place of truth. And so as a society, we have run to truthlessness. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm using it. We have run to truthlessness. We've run some, we have run from truth. And so we have run from God, who is truth. We look around at this world and its chaos. You know, we continue to read Reports of mass shootings, sexual assault is rampant. People are not only trying to figure out what gender they are, society has told them that they have a choice in that particular matter. Racism is rampant, as is pornography, substance abuse, adultery. And I mean, you can just fill in the blank with whatever sin you would like to. As we look around at our culture and our society and our world, we begin to wonder, how, how did it come to this? Didn't God make this place? Why? Why did he let it fall to ruin? If God is so good, why? Why is there so much pain? Why did he let this place fall to ruin? You know, you'd be right. God did make this place. As we read in Genesis 1 to 2, God created the whole earth. Every creature On the ground, every bird in the air, every fish in the sea, everything we can taste, touch, see, and smell was created by God. And when he was done creating, we read in Genesis 1.31, we read, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was good. When he was done making it, everything was good. (laughs) So what happened? We look around now and, I mean, it's, it's not good. So how do we get here? How do we get here? We got here because of us. We got here because of us. 
In Genesis 3, we read about the fall, how Adam and Eve sinned, went against what God instructed them, and were banished from the Garden of Eden. Humans introduced sin into the world. With sin came decay and flesh and death. Decay and death. For all of creation. All of creation was affected by the sin of man. And what we see as we look around us today, the rampant sin, this is the world that we have produced. We are the source of the corruption. And because of our sin, this is where we deserve to live. Because of our sin, this is where we deserve to live. The pain the suffering. This is what we deserve. This is what we have earned. The sin that we see in the world, the sin that surrounds us. I mean, we're not immune to it, are we? Do some of the ways that sin manifests in this culture of ours may disgust or offend us. We are just as guilty of sin ourselves. We're no better than our fellow man. Sin is sin, and and though our sense of morality may keep us from committing some sins, any sin is enough to keep us from God. Any sin is enough to corrupt, to bring decay. So do you have any sin in your life? Any trespass? Any lust? Any greed? Hate? Envy? I do. I do. And so it is that this is the world in which we deserve to live. And yet, because of the love of God, this is not our home. This is not our home. God made us created us in his own image, not so that we would rot and decay, but so that we could have, he could have relationship with us. And when he went and, and when we went and messed the whole plan up by sinning, I mean, he took measures into his own hands. He knew that we could not pay the price of our sin because we've been tainted by the sin. We could not atone for the sin. So he sent one that was free from taint. He sent his son Jesus to take our sin upon his shoulders, to take the punishment for sin in our place, that our relationship with God might be restored. It is faith in Jesus that restores us to relationship with the Father. Faith in Jesus. In Hebrews 11, we read about how those in the Hall of Fame, the Faith Hall of Fame, were led by faith, walked by faith. Hebrews eleven seven by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Hebrews eleven eight by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, 
by faith. By faith. All through that chapter, we see that it is by faith that these people are living. That it is by faith that they are saved. For people that are living by faith, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They are not comfortable where they are. They know that this is not where they belong. For it is by faith in Jesus that they have been restored to the Father. Faith in Jesus Christ and his necessary work on the cross. Taking the wrath of God for each of us so that when God looks at us, his wonderful creation that betrayed him by sinning, He does not see our sin, but instead he sees his son. He sees Jesus. And so we walk by faith as well. Along with Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, you know, and and the list goes on. We are not home yet. We're not home yet. We are exiles in a foreign land. This is not where we belong. But it is where we have been put. So how do we respond? How do we live as exiles in a land that is antagonistic toward us? Have we gotten comfortable in exile? Have we gotten comfortable in exile? Have we become practiced at not making waves, at at living life so as to ruffle as few feathers as possible and to go about our business? When we have read about how God is calling his church to be missional, relational, and intentional, it hits us how few waves we want to make, right? We ask the the question, how... How will going forth in God's mission affect me? My friends, we are not called to comfort. We are the church in exile. We are aliens in a foreign land. And God wants to partner with us in his mission of making exiles. Because of the love of God, this is not our home. Let's not get too comfortable while we are here. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was born in Russia in 1918. As a child, he was brainwashed by a state education system which taught him that Russian socialism was good and that religion was the enemy of the people. Like many of his school friends, he enslaved himself to the Zeitgeist, became an atheist, and joined the Communist Party. While serving with the Soviet Army in the Eastern Front during the Second World War, he witnessed cold-blooded murder and and soldiers having their way with women and children. These acts committed by the Russian Army under the pretense of revenge against the Germans. Disillusioned, he committed an indiscretion by criticizing the Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. And so he was imprisoned at a work camp for eight years as a political dissident. 
After his sentence at the work camp ended, Alexander was sent to exile for life in Berlik, a village in Baidebek, district of South Kazakhstan. It was during this time that he converted to Christianity and resolved to expose the horrors of the Soviet system. For many of us, we chafe at the idea of being in prison, of being in a labor camp, of being in exile, of not being comfortable. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, instead of cursing his time in exile, he chose to bless it. For he said, the meaning of earthly existence lies not, as we have grown used to thinking, in prospering, but in the development of the soul. The meaning of earthly existence lies not, as we have grown used to thinking, in prospering, but in the development of the soul. He's not wrong. The purpose of our existence is not for us to be comfortable. Our purpose is spiritual in nature. God wants to use His church in His mission to bring about His kingdom. We're exiles. Don't get comfortable. Let us engage our culture with the good news of the gospel. Let us live like exiles. Let us not be comfortable. Let us engage our culture. How do we do that? How have we been doing that? This is a passage from an article put out by Ligonier Ministries. And I, I think it's very accurate. It reads, When it comes to the culture war, American evangelicals often embrace one of two extremes. On the one hand, they can give up trying to influence society altogether. And on the other, they might believe the nation will be saved if we elect the right people and pass the right laws. A more biblical approach would be to affirm the legitimacy of Christians serving the common good in the public square while recognizing that the gospel saves, not moralism. We have tended to give up on influencing society, or we have tended to lean towards legislating morality and and hoping that that will do the trick. Are we ready to take the biblical approach? Are we ready to serve the common good in the public square while preaching the gospel to a world that is dying to hear it? That is how we engage our culture, by speaking into it, by speaking truth, into it, not ignoring it and not expecting politicians to do it for us, but by being used by God in His mission to bring about His kingdom. How does that look in our lives? How does being used for His kingdom look in your life? For each of us, it's going to look a little different, but there will be the common thread of the gospel. The wondrous good news that is the message of the exile. That is the hope of the nations. Man, what a privilege. What a joy. 
What an honor it is to be an exile, to be an alien, and to share the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord. By faith, we have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because of that faith in his salvific work on the cross, this is not our home. And just as the heroes of old, we look not at this current world as our home, for God has prepared for us a city. As Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, verses 1 to 6, let not your hearts be troubled. It can be scary thinking about this. It can be scary thinking about working working out the gospel working out God's mission in a, in a world antagonistic towards us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our home is in heaven, where Jesus himself has prepared a place for us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So until that time when we go up to be with him and live in our heavenly home, let us be wrapped in the love of Christ and chosen by God before time as his precious creation sent on his most important mission. Let us live as exiles. Amen.